0: Hello and I am back again with a pre-episode request. So Real Life Ghost Stories came third in the British Podcast Awards thanks to you absolute little legends and I have to say it lit a fire in me. I am determined to win something this year if it kills me. I found out only in the last few weeks that this year for the first time there is an Irish Podcast Awards and they have a Listener's Choice Award and listen I don't want to be premature but like could Real Life Ghost Stories win? If you can and if you want to, please sling a vote to Real Life Ghost Stories on www.theirishpodcastawards.ie forward slash vote. The link will be in the description as always. It's the same as last time. You have to vote and then verify by email and that's it. it. Takes two seconds. And as with the last time, if you listen to other indie Irish podcasts, please throw them a vote too. I believe the voting closes on the 11th of September, so I'll do a couple of more little reminders before that point. But thank you, I love you all so much, and let's get into the episode. Okay, bye! Hello and welcome to episode 167 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Shannon Walls Richard Walters Beccarella Elizabeth Joanne Walker Mel Morley Alan Cadwallader Julia Barnes Caitlin Roper Amy M Lacey Woodrow Rebecca Davis Nord Naomi McGrath-Rollins, Gavin and Sean, Ulrika Anderson, India Ashmore, Christian Valera, M, Matthew Doy, and Thea Merritt. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is Hellbender. Hellbender was released in 2021. It is 5.8 out of 10 on IMDb and a whopping 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. A teen and her mother live simply in a home in the woods, spending their time making metal music. A chance encounter with a fellow teen causes her to uncover a connection between her family and witchcraft, which causes a rift with her mother. I did not have high expectations for this film, but I was pleasantly surprised. To give a bit more context, Izzy is a teen girl in the movie. She lives in the woods with her mother and she's ill with an autoimmune disorder, which means that she can't be around other people. So she lives deep in the woods with her mom. They make metal music and they are this like sick mother and daughter metal band. And when I was doing a bit of mid-movie Googling, I realized that they are a real life family. So they're a mother and daughter in real life. The dad directed it. The other teenager is played by the teenager's sister in real life. And it's real life music. They're real life musicians. They're songs they've written and played for the movie. And I just loved it. It it added an extra layer to this movie, which I was really impressed with. And it also goes to show that it had a micro budget. This is just a family who enjoy making movies. So keep that in mind if you do decide to watch it. I was surprised by it because it's a real coming of age movie. And it's such an interesting look at like parent-child dynamics. So it's really a deep dive into the mother-daughter relationship. I mean, they start the movie as like best friends. The mother's trying to protect the daughter because of her autoimmune disorder. And you get this glimpse very early on as the viewer that the mother is a witch. There's no ambiguity about that. This isn't a film where you spend the film going is she really a witch or is it all in their head? No, she is a witch. The mother is a witch. And you get sort of these strange little glimpses into the oddness of their life, like the things that they eat, the things that the mother eats when the child isn't there. And we know really early on that the mother is a really powerful witch and has the ability to do terrible, terrible things. So as the viewer, you sort of end up transported into this world where these two people live in isolation it's really psychedelic like lots of stuff is shown through dreams and visions lots of weird stuff happens it kind of blew my mind a little bit and I was intrigued I was really drawn into this film it's definitely not a jump scare type horror movie I presume because they had such a small budget they ended up using CGI quite sparingly which I often think is quite a good thing like know your limitations when you're making a film and what I really enjoyed about it was that it had very little care for the outside world. So the mother and the daughter lived within this world, the mother is a witch. And there isn't really a sense of, oh no, what will we do if the humans find out? Or, oh no, I just want to live a normal life with other humans. No, it's just they live within this world and the story takes place within their world. And I really appreciated that. And fundamentally, overall, I just love a small indie movie. And I love to see them done well. And this was done well on such a tiny budget. However, there are things that are, I don't know, left unsaid or ambiguous that I was dying to know more about. And I'm not really sure whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. I think it can be really powerful to not have a really exposition heavy narrative and just leave things to the watcher's imagination. Like that can be a really good thing. But in this instance, I felt like there was so much more I needed to know. And then when there was exposition, it tended to be I don't know, I felt like the script was a bit awkward, a bit clunky at times. Dialogue seemed to be sort of wedged in unnaturally just for exposition purposes. But when I was watching it and I was thinking about it as a film, if it was a TV series, hook it to my veins. If this was a TV series, I would have loved every second of it because he'd have a longer period of time to be able to create a narrative and a story arc and really learn about the characters as they explore who they really are. And to its credit, it does show that you can create something really wonderful and atmospheric and unsettling on a tiny budget. But in saying that, it was very, very strange and it definitely won't be for everybody. That is a fact. I think when I was watching it, I was trying to figure out What could I compare it to? Like what movie or even series or something could I compare it to? And the only thing I could think of was that it gave me the same vibes as Let the Right One In. Now, that is not for a second to say that it is as good as Let the Right One In or Let Me In, whichever version, but it just had similar feelings. I think if you're a person who practices witchcraft or is at least interested in the world of witchcraft, this film is probably a good one to watch. Because it's just not like any film that I've seen in a really long time. So I think for me, Hellbenders is going to have to get a three out of five. It was good. It was interesting. It was intriguing. But it was let down by kind of an awkward script. I would recommend if you do watch it as a side note to have a look at different interviews and stuff that the family who made it have done. This film in particular was based on the idea that sometimes parents will do things keep secrets make tough decisions in order to protect their child that don't always seem like the right thing to do afterwards which I thought was interesting because a lot of parents could probably relate to that and they've also made other films which I'm definitely going to check out which seem to have been really well received so I think they're definitely worth checking out which brings us to our story this week now I love a witchy story and I thought, if we're going to do a witchy film this week, why not do a witchy story to go with it? And this story, like a lot of the other stories in the last couple of weeks, has been on my list for ages and it seemed like the perfect time to get into it. So let's just get straight into it. Let's get started. Philip Love went into the woods in search of a story. He had approached the owner of the land, explained what he wanted to do, and the landowner had raised his eyebrows, sighed, and said, sure. Sure. Why not? Philip wasn't the first journalist to have come knocking and he certainly wouldn't be the last. On the morning of the excursion, Philip arrived with a camera and a notebook and a somewhat over-enthusiastic demeanour. Again, the landowner raised his eyebrows, but inwardly this time. He had seen this before. People thought that the story was beneath them. He could imagine past Philip now, sniggering as the story was pitched to him. We need a good story for Halloween, one that everyone knows, and it's your job to go out there and get it and make it damn interesting. As they trudged through the woodland, Philip snapped pictures of the trees and the stream, trying to capture the ambiance, as he said. It was his job to find the words to transport the reader to the place. But in the modern world, pictures were always good for reference. As they hiked, Philip began to feel a change in the atmosphere. Was it just him, or did the woods seem quieter? Did the air feel heavier? Strange, he thought. The landowner's brow was furrowed now in an expression of vigilance. He stopped abruptly. It's there, he said gruffly, and pointed ahead to a small clearing. Philip and the landowner stood in an awkward silence for a moment. Aren't you going to come with me? Philip asked. No, came the curt reply. Philip shook himself and stepped towards the clearing. This was stupid. It was clearly the local man having a joke at the expense of the out-of-towner. But in spite of himself, Philip felt a little thrill of excitement when he saw it. For all the world, it looked pretty innocuous, and it was somehow smaller than he had anticipated. But it was there all right. The famous rock with its strange little indentations on the top of it. He snapped away, circling the rock when he suddenly felt a searing pain in his knee. It came out of nowhere and completely blindsided him. He let out an involuntary shout of pain and crumpled onto the ground. He looked up at the landowner, who watched him expressionless, but didn't take a single step towards him. Can you come and help me? Nothing. No movement. Philip managed to scramble to his feet, but the pain in his knee persisted. He hobbled his way back to the landowner, and as though it wasn't plainly obvious, he gasped. I think I've sprained my knee, but I don't understand how I've done it. It was like my knee just gave away from under me. The landowner turned to go back the way they came. I told you it was cursed. He didn't stop to help Philip, and barely turning his head, he called back. Check your camera. Philip was confused but obediently picked up his camera and raised it to his eye. He clicked the camera, and it made a strange whirring and clicking sound that he had never heard before. On further investigation later, he realised that the camera had completely malfunctioned. In 1968, Philip Love wrote an article for the Washington Star, all about The Rock and the legend of Maldire the Witch. In 1972, it was decided that the rock would be moved. The local National Guard removed the 875-pound boulder and it took up residence in Leonardtown, next to the Old Jail, where it became an even more popular landmark. If you are like me and didn't know the story of Moll Dyer, we'll get into it, but let's just lay the groundwork. Our story takes place in southern Maryland, which is a mid-Atlantic state of the US of A. The movement of Maldire's rock was met with some controversy. People of the area were concerned that the moving of the rock would whip up the old curse. The curse that had plagued them for centuries. Philip Love wasn't the only one who fell foul of Maldire's curse. The movement of the rock was fraught with tensions and mishaps. There were injuries, equipment was breaking without any reason why, and someone's glasses even shattered. And while the last one seems frivolous and it did make me laugh, There were people in the town who believed that the curse of Maldire was responsible for an unusually high number of tragic events that seemed to befall the families in the area, from traffic accidents to unexplained freak weather incidents. Young people would dare each other to go into the woods and touch the rock, and there were countless people who had reported strange things happening in the woods. Apparitions of a woman that would appear and disappear around the time of accidents and freak storms whipping up in an instant. Some families believed that they were being punished for what their ancestors had done centuries before. Mary Dyer was born in 1634, to William and Elizabeth Dyer in Devon in England. She was one of the middle children of seven, and was born into extremely hard times. During her time in England, the country was in a state of crisis. Civil war raged, and it was the people who felt the consequences. Plague, disease, and starvation were rife, and people were struggling. It is possible that Mary Dyer got married, but as Mary Dyer was a common name, this cannot be verified. Either way, she left for America in 1669 as a single woman aged 35 years old. The passage to America was horrific, and it is genuinely a miracle that so many people survived the journey. The ships were dank, and dirty and the only food available was food that had to survive for weeks and weeks at sea. Disease would spread like wildfire and many people perished on the journey. In later years during the famine in Ireland, ships to America were referred to as coffin ships because of how treacherous the journey was, so one can only imagine the conditions of passage a couple of hundred years before. Mary Dyer arrived in St Kitts and Nevis as an indentured servant and worked on a sugarcane plantation for eight years. It is likely that she worked for four years to pay off her passage and another four years to continue her journey to America. It is suspected that Mary Dyer would have shared her knowledge of herbs, healing and midwifery from Devon with other indentured servants and slaves, and in turn she would have had learned healing traditions and religious rituals from people from far-flung corners of the world. There was actually a strong-held belief that the slaves and indentured servants often had more knowledge of healing and herbal medicine than European doctors who were living on the islands. In 1677, Moll Dyer arrived in Maryland. She had secured an indentured role with a citizen of Leonardtown, and with this role she was given a tiny plot of land to live on. She was 43 years old when she arrived, and it is believed that she worked out her indentured contract and then lived as a free woman on a little plot of land. She worked doing various bits of domestic servitude, herbal remedies, midwifery and good witchcraft that she had picked up on the islands. She was an older, childless, Catholic woman who practiced odd rituals and magic. And as times began to change, people began to become more and more suspicious of her. It's important to remember that during this time period at local level, Witchcraft was generally fine. People accepted that there were women who lived on the fringes of society, who had an innate knowledge of herbs and rituals that could provide cures and generally help people in their lives. The problems arose when things didn't go well for the recipients of the rituals, or when things went wrong in the community and people needed someone to blame. Witchcraft was only really a problem when it became conflated with devil worship. Maul Dyer's demise began in the winter of 1697. She was caring for a young girl in the community and the young girl died completely suddenly and unexpectedly. So distraught were the girl's parents that they blamed Maul for her untimely death. They had been perfectly happy for Maul to care for their daughter, but they needed someone to blame in their grief and Maul was the easy target. The incident itself just wasn't enough for Maul to be accused of witchcraft. But the parents ranted and raved to anyone who would listen, and suspicious eyes began to turn to Maul's little hut. They cast their minds back to the autumn before, when the crops had failed, and no one could understand why. And then they began to think of the unusual amount of farm animal deaths that had occurred in recent times. Whispers were briefly stifled by extreme cold weather. It was so cold... The town records state that the winter began in November and there was still no sign of it lifting by March. The people were perishing in the cold. A terrible bout of influenza ripped through the town and with people already hungry, deaths were coming thick and fast. But someone was faring strangely well in the extreme conditions. Moll Dyer made her way to town to do some errands and people looked at her in shock and then began to chitter-chatter to each other with venom. She was healthy, well-fed, and unscathed, and had not fallen foul to the influenza that was ravaging others. Maul was not stupid and she knew what was happening. The tide had well and truly turned against her, but in the local area the conviction rate for witchcraft was actually surprisingly slim. The colony of Maryland had been set up with ideals of religious tolerance and a recognition that people of different creeds and practices should be allowed to practice without repercussions. But in this case, the people were desperate. They were angry. There had been so much darkness in their lives, disease, the weather, they were hungry and ultimately they were scared. And in their minds, Maul was the cause of it. They were sure of it. They knew they couldn't easily get her arrested but they wanted her hanged, they wanted her dead. It is unclear what the thought process was for the local people, but late in the night, Maul awoke to her tiny hut, hot and full of smoke. It was on fire. She wrapped herself in a blanket and made her way out of the burning building, coughing and spluttering. The townspeople had gathered in a mob and silently swept through the town towards her hut, hoping to catch her off guard and burn her in her bed. Whether the people noticed her leave the house is unclear, but Moll escaped, barefoot and wrapped only in her blanket, and knowing what would happen if the angry mob got her hands on her, she fled into the woods, into the dark of the night. She ran through the trees with her feet bare and her breath billowing out in front of her until she was deep in the forest and away from the mob. But it was cold. Dangerously Cold and Maul knew she needed to not stay on the cold ground. The ground temperature would only quicken the rate of exposure, so she climbed up on a boulder, hoping to save herself. But she soon realised she was going to die. This was the end for her. A few days later, a young boy who was hunting in the woods came across Maul Dyer's body. She had frozen to death on the rock, and the extreme temperatures meant that there she remained, frozen on her knees, with her hand extended upwards. The boy fled the scene and informed the adults in the community, who went to the rock and removed her body and buried her in a pauper's grave. They whispered how the position of her body made it look like she was reaching to the sky to curse the land. The rock seemed to have indentations where her knees and hands had frozen. And the curse of Maldire seemed to continue. Her demise brought no respite from the poor weather, or from the death, or from the disease. And in the years that followed, people still attributed misfortune to her curse. In the 1940s, a couple arrived in Leonardtown. John Hatfield and Mary Bell moved to Maryland in order to seek refuge. Mary Bell was black, and John Hatfield was white. And their relationship was likely to be more accepted in the more tolerant Maryland. They had both been married previously, and it seems that John left his wife and children to be with Mary, and Mary left her son to be with John. When they settled in Maryland, they settled in a little cottage built in Dyers Wood. They were wildly in love, and by all accounts lived a peaceful and happy life in Dyers Wood until Mary Bell sadly passed away from chronic kidney disease. John had had two tombs built outside of their property, so that when they died, they could spend eternity side by side. Unfortunately for John, when Mary died, he was completely unable to manage his grief and kept opening the tomb to remove Mary's body and bring it into the house. When this was discovered, John was removed from the home and placed in a psychiatric institution where he remained until his death in 1969. In November 1964, a newspaper reported that three local teenagers – had been convicted of grave robbing. They broke into the tomb of Mary Bell and stole her skull and brought it into town. The skull was returned after their arrest, but the following Halloween, some local teenagers once again broke into the tomb, and while they didn't steal anything, the tomb remained open to the elements, and it remains open to this day, with only a few bones remaining. Many believe that the fact that Mary Bell was not granted peace in her death means that her restless spirit roams the woods along with Maul Dyer. During the fall of 1984, Karen Stauffer and her friends were driving aimlessly one Saturday afternoon. While cruising along the roads, Karen suddenly had the bright idea that they could make their way to Maul Dyer's cottage and see what all the fuss was about. She had read an article about the suggested place of the burned-out cottage and was keen to go for a look. Her friends were less keen and had zero interest in scoping out the cottage from childhood stories. But Karen insisted and later claimed that she felt as though some inexplicable force had drawn her to that place. The girls chatted as they trudged through the woods, the sun dappling the ground as it shone through the trees. In the natural lull of the conversation, Karen began to notice something strange. The woods were completely silent there was no bird song, no rustle of small animals, nothing. Weird, she thought, as they marched on towards the spot where the foundations of the hut had allegedly been found. As they approached the site, something peculiar began to happen. The temperature dropped as the girls walked on, rubbing their arms now covered in goosebumps. Some of the girls suggested turning around, but Karen was insistent that they continue, The wind whipped up around them, blasted cold air in their faces, and the sky above them began to darken. As they got to the site that was allegedly where the hut used to be, thunder boomed above them and lightning struck, illuminating the now dark woods. The girls fled, sprinting through the trees to get back to their car. As Karen ran, she couldn't shake the feeling that someone was running right behind her, reaching to grab her as though their fingers were grazing her but not quite able to catch her. She heard the sounds of leaves crunching and twigs snapping under someone's feet behind her. They ran and ran until they made it back to the car where they realised something extraordinary. The weather was beautiful again. The skies were blue and the sun was shining. and There was no sign of the dark clouds that had rolled in. No thunder and lightning and no icy wind. On the way back to the town, Karen recalled the details of the story of Maul Dyer and remembered that one of the things she was feared for was her alleged ability to control the weather. It is said that the spirit of Maul Dyer will appear on the coldest night of the year and nod to her demise perishing alone in the cold on a rock in the middle of the woods. And in February 2013, the Weather Channel decided that they would feature Mal Dyer in an episode. They were running a series called Supernatural, which was based on weather-related supernatural events and freak weather phenomena. The setup for shooting the Mal Dyer episode was exactly as you might imagine. Candles in the library, and low lights with atmospheric shots of the woodland, and witness testimony of supernatural experiences in Mal Dyer's wood. Then the call came in. There was a tornado warning for Southern Maryland and people needed to take shelter underground immediately. Everyone scrabbled to get to their basements and the tornado passed, leaving the expected damage, but no one hurt or injured. But here's the strange thing. The tornado ripped right through Maldire's wood and it was unheard of for there to be a tornado in Southern Maryland, particularly in the month of February. And even stranger still, in the coming weeks the people involved in the filming got a call could they reshoot the scenes because the camera had malfunctioned and they had lost their footage as time has moved on the story of Mal dyer and indeed the story of mary bell have become a firm fixture in the folklore of southern maryland and to this day people still go on halloween spooky pilgrimages to mall dyer's house in general people accept the story as folklore But many people never have and never will touch Maldire's rock, just in case. One of the descendants of the people who burned Maldire's house down, a Mr. Bennett, seemed to firmly believe that his family line had been cursed because of their role in the death of an innocent woman. Any misfortune that befell his family was blamed on Maldire's curse. Today, it seems to be universally agreed that weather anomalies seem to happen around Moll Dyer's wood. That the worst of the weather seems to find its focal point on her cursed land. What an absolute joy that story is. So the research came from a book called Moll Dyer and Other Witch Tales of Southern Maryland by Lynn J. Boone I think Boone I don't know which way to pronounce it, but it was a really good book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I got it on Amazon. I was just researching Mal Dyer, came across her book and she was just really compelled to try and find out if Mal Dyer was a real person. So all of the story about Mal Dyer coming from Devon all came from her meticulous tracking of records to try and find out information about Mal Dyer or Mary Dyer. And by all accounts, it is very clear that there was a Mary Dyer who lived in Leonardtown and was a woman who had knowledge of healing and herbs and all that jam and lived on her own. And it seems like it's very likely that she was burnt out of her hut by local residents. And there were a couple of things that really struck me about this story. Um, the first being that life as an indentured servant must be have been horrendous. It must have been horrendous, but obviously indentured servants could work their way out of servitude. Um, the description in the book of life in St. Kitts and Nevis for slaves and indentured servants, I mean, it's just horrendous. Slaves and indentured servants worked on sugarcane plantations where they would either work the land or they would be domestic servants or domestic slaves for the families who lived on these sugarcane plantations. And it was just disease, starvation. I mean, we all know how horrendous the lives of slaves was, but when you read about it and you go, oh God, this actually happened to people. It's just awful. And the thing about indentured servants is that they had a way out. They had a way out eventually. I was super intrigued by the slaves and indentured servants all sharing elements of their rituals, their faith, their healing. And I said in the story about how the slaves and the indentured servants were often seen as being more knowledgeable than actual European doctors on the islands at the time. Now, we all know that medicine at the time was chaotic at best, but there were recorded stories of indentured servants and slaves who stepped in and stopped doctors from administering a certain treatment and recommended another treatment. And they were listened to. They were listened to because it was believed that actually their combined knowledge from all over the world was far more powerful and actually seemed to be ultimately more effective. So I'd love to know what Mal Dyer's practice ended up looking like, because she likely would have had Catholicism mixed with herbal remedies, mixed with pagan rituals, and then also mixed with various rituals from different African countries. And she probably spent a lot of time figuring out what really worked and what didn't. So this bit from my repertoire doesn't work. But actually, I met this person who practiced this particular religion and that works much better. So I'll use that instead. So people must have been completely baffled by her when she arrived in Maryland and was living as a free woman after working her time of indentured servitude. They must have thought, how does she have all this knowledge? But what's really interesting is that people kind of accepted it. They were like, well, she's doing good things. We don't know how she has this knowledge. We don't really understand it. But she is doing good things. She's able to heal people. It seems like she was a pretty popular healer. People from all walks of life seemed to go to her if they needed something, which generally happens in all of our witch stories. When you have all of these stories about witches who lived on the fringes, people would sometimes secretly go and visit these witches. Sometimes it was very open but all the time, the tide eventually turns when things start going wrong. And Moll Dyer is really representative of that type of woman of that era who somehow managed to forge a life on her own through her own resourcefulness. And I think that if the assertions made by Lynn J. Bonvary in her book are real, then she's a really impressive woman. Mal Dyer is a really impressive woman. And it's also very likely that when the town was ravaged by influenza, ravaged by disease, Mal Dyer didn't die or didn't succumb to disease because she had been exposed to so much disease already. She lived in England in a time where disease was rife. She got on a coffin ship to go over to America and miraculously didn't die and would have been exposed to so much disease on those ships. And then, on the plantations, she would have been exposed to so much disease as well. So it's likely that she probably just had an immunity to things like influenza. And so, of course, when disease and starvation and influenza hit this little town in Maryland, and they were looking at Dyer and thinking, hang on, she's absolutely fine. How is that possible? She then suddenly became... An easy target, somebody to blame, a way that you can go, this is all so uncontrollable, this weather, this disease, our animals are dying, we can't control it, but maybe we can regain some of the control if we can find something to blame for it. And that was what they did to her. And it sounds like the curse was a culmination of not understanding the freak weather that occurred and probably a combined guilt for causing the death of a woman. So Mr. Bennett, for example, he experienced, I think, a lot of death, a lot of untimely death in his life. I believe one of his children died and then one of his grandchildren died. And it is written in the book that he blamed Dyer's curse for that, in that his family were involved in the attempted burning of this woman and therefore his family were just destined to suffer for generations to come. The author of the book herself also wrote about how when the Weather Channel were doing their Supernatural series and they decided to do the bit about Moll Dyer, um, when the tornado call came in, the author's garden was really damaged by the tornado, whereas everybody else around her remained pretty unscathed. So she felt like, ooh, <laughs> that's a bit of a sign. And then she also said that she decided to touch the rock, Mal Dyer's rock, and that she is a longtime sufferer of COPD, which is a lung condition. And when she touched the rock, her lungs started bleeding and that was according to her. And those two little things in the book were sort of just casual asides. They weren't, you know, big culminating parts of the story to be like, haha, look, see, the curse is real. They were just little asides to be like, here's some weird things that happened while I was researching and writing this book. And um, it's a bit weird and maybe you should know about it. I think it's really important that the story of these women are told and that they are kept alive because they were strong, resourceful women who learned to live from the land and learned the healing properties of things and when things went wrong people needed somebody to blame and it was quite often these women who lived on the fringes of society who got the blame and I don't do witch stories very often like I try to space them out because they tend to be quite similar which is actually really sad they tend to follow the same narrative you've got a woman she's generally single living on her own and she has knowledge of the land she has knowledge of healing People go to her in the community but when things go wrong and they need somebody to blame she is generally the first person who gets the blame. But I loved this story I knew very little about it thank you so much to whoever it was that suggested it I think they suggested it on Instagram and it's been on my list for a really long time so I'm so glad I got to do it this week. Thank you so much for listening remember if you can to vote for real life ghost stories in the Irish podcast awards that's the IrishPodcastAwards.ie forward slash vote Uh, you have to verify by email same as the last time if you could vote i'd be very thankful i'd really appreciate it and if you want to know more about real life ghost stories podcast you can check out real life ghost stories podcast.com and if you are desperate for some more content you can sign up to patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories where for five dollars a month or two dollars a month you get access to heaps of extra content and every single main episode and mini episode absolutely ad free and on that note i shall see you next time